Morning. Hello, everyone. My name is uh, Sanjay Attar, and I am a principal solutions architect with AWS, uh, based out of New York. Uh, within AWS, I work uh, within our global accounts team, which uh, covers uh, some of our largest customers, you know, Fortune 500 companies. Uh, shortly, later in this presentation, you'll be hearing from uh, Zaid Masood, uh, who, who is one of our customers, uh, part of, who is part of Lithion, uh, which is part of ADP. The topic we have for today is Lithion's cloud transformation journey. Before we jump into you know, Lithion's cloud transformation journey, I'd like to spend uh, a few minutes with all of you to uh, give you a brief overview of uh, cloud transformation in general. And uh, I'd also like to talk to you about what I've seen customers do uh, in terms of some of the decisions they've taken uh, and actions they've taken as to be successful in their cloud transformation. Quick show of hands here. Uh, how many of you within your organization uh, have a, a cloud-first approach organization-wide for any new development or deployment going into the cloud? Okay, so I'd say about 30, 30 to 35% of you. Now, uh, keep your hands up if, if these deployments that you have running in the cloud are, are cloud-native. And, and let me define what cloud-native means. So you, you have, your, your architecture is, is completely microservices based. You, you know, you're, you're using containers, you're using blue-green deployments, you're using continuous deployment automation and, and DevOps. Okay, so I'd say roughly about 10% of you had your hands up. So Capgemini did a study and, and what they found is only 15% of organizations use a cloud-native approach. Uh, and, and that number is expected to double to 30% by 2020. Now, when we look at cloud adoption today, it seems very ubiquitous. Um, I, I remember, you know, about four, five years ago, uh, you know, I, I would hear people talk about cloud being the new normal. Uh, today, I think cloud is normal. Uh, but still, you know, wh why, why do we have such a low percentage of cloud-native, uh, you know, deployments running, running in AWS or in the cloud? So there's several challenges that, that organizations face and enterprises face when it comes to uh, being able to adopt, be, be run cloud-native. And um, you know, legacy infrastructure is definitely something most enterprises have, uh, especially if, if you're a large organization that's been in business for a while. Uh, you're definitely gonna have you know, these legacy applications, these monoliths that companies don't wanna invest in to, to uh, make them cloud-native. You heard in uh, Andy's keynote yesterday uh, you know, legacy applications a lot of times have uh, old guard uh, technologies or old guard vendors that they deal with for their, for their you know, wh where they're running proprietary databases. And, you know, we do have, you know, several tools. So Werner this, Werner this morning talked about, uh, you know, the, the cloud native databases that we have and, and how you can use database migration service to, to really uh, move off some of these proprietary databases. Uh, but it's really not the technology. Uh, you know, I think, you know, we're all technologists here, you know, we're smart people, and, and we figure things out. We, 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 if, if there's a challenge, we figure out a solution for it, or, or if not, we figure out a workaround. And, you know, what, what even Forbes said is really the challenges is, is beyond technology, and it really goes into, you know, the people, the process, and the skills. So today, AWS has millions of customers, and what we've seen is we've seen certain patterns in how customers adopt uh, the cloud and how they evolve and mature and, and reinvent themselves uh, in, in the cloud. And, and we see customers go through four key stages as, as they go about this journey. 
So the first stage is, is the project stage. So this is typically, you know, we, we, we saw this in early days, uh, you know, in the enterprise, where many enterprises were skeptical about cloud and they thought, ah, you know, cloud is really something for, you know, like the startups and maybe like the small shops and, you know, cloud is not really something that's enterprise ready. So the, the trend we started seeing was uh, sometimes you had, you know, maybe a business unit that would just go out there and, and, and pick a specific project or a specific, a specific workload and, and run it in the cloud. And sometimes without the knowledge of central IT, so that's your classic shadow IT. And the, the next stage we saw, you know, companies move from that project stage where it no longer was a science project. Now, you know, companies are moving into that foundational stage, and I'm speaking about enterprises. So enterprises wanted to really, you know, they, they saw some success with, with some of these workloads running in the cloud, and, and they also wanted to kind of pull in some of these business units that may have gone rogue. Uh, so, so they really wanted to, you know, try to get ahead of that curve and, and get to that foundational stage where they, where they wanted to build a, a, a hybrid cloud strategy. So in this foundational stage, you know, you're, you're talking about uh, where you definitely need central IT. Uh, it it's going to be hard to move into that hybrid cloud strategy you know, without central IT, because you, you're looking at things like getting VPN set up, getting Direct Connect set up, uh, building a landing zone. So, so this is the stage where, where uh, you know, central IT is, is building you know, their hybrid strategy where they're looking at maybe a cloud-first approach where anything new, they don't put it in the data center and anything new goes in the cloud. Or maybe they're looking at uh, using uh, AWS as, as a target for all their disaster recovery applications. The next stage from there where we saw companies evolve or move to, you know, in, 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 this, in this evolution was the migration stage. So, you know, at the foundation stage, you, you had some workloads running in the cloud. Enterprises, you know, had, you know, and they started realizing the benefits of, you know, trading CapEx versus OpEx. Uh, they started seeing lower costs, you know, the agility and, um, you know, the elasticity that the cloud has to offer. And, and this is the point we started seeing enterprises, uh, you know, start to move significant workloads now. Now, you're, you're talking about mission-critical applications, you know, SAP, uh, you know, some, some of the core business systems started moving uh, in, into the cloud. The, the last stage, and, and this is like the nirvana stage where everybody wants to get to, is, is where you're fully optimized. You're completely cloud-native, as we talked about, where everything is automated, you're, you're leveraging DevOps, and everybody's in a happy place. Uh, this is where everybody, everybody wants to be at, uh, but it does take, you know, it does have some challenges that we looked at earlier, and, and this is a stage where companies really want to uh, see how, how they can really get the full benefit of, of, the, of the cloud platform. Because at this point, yes, you know, AWS does have a very vast set of services. It's not just a set of building blocks, but it, it, it's, it's getting the benefit of the entire platform and, and where you can really be optimized to harness the full benefits that the AWS cloud has to offer. So let's, let's take a look at what are, what are some of these ingredients. So you know, in, in seeing you know, all these customers go through their journey, uh, uh, there's five key ingredients that I see customers uh, execute when it, when it comes to uh, having a successful cloud transformation. So the first one is executive sponsorship. Uh, I, I know before AWS, I was an enterprise architect, you know, working for a large professional services organization, and, and I was working on a cloud strategy. I did get executive you know, a sponsorship to, to back me up on, 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 the, on the cloud transformation that I was working on. But I really didn't take it up to the senior most levels, and, and I get, got to a point where the project just fell apart. So, so this is where I see, you know, even some customers stumble with this, where, where uh, really when it comes to executive sponsorship, you, you really want to go at the highest levels. So, so, you know, we're talking about CIOs, CISOs, you know, CTOs. So you really want to get to the highest level of executive sponsorship 
because this would help you avoid any potential roadblocks because you're, you're, you're talking about a cloud transformation program. So, so you really want to define the program, you want to have milestones, you want to have dates, you want to have tasks, you want to have like project managers assigned, you want to have resources assigned, who are actually going to you know, be assigned to this program so you can, you can execute the strategy. The next thing is DevOps. Uh, I think through the course of this week, uh, you know, you've probably heard of DevOps a hundred times. So, uh, you know, DevOps basically is, 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 is more than the tools. I mean, it's definitely about the tools and technology, but it's a lot more about the culture. So this is what makes that executive sponsorship, uh, you know, we talked about earlier, uh, important, because you're talking about a cultural change uh, within the organization. And, and usually cultural change is always defined, you know, from the top down. So, you know, basically DevOps, uh, you know, is, is, is a combination of cultural philosophies, uh, practices and tools that basically increases an organization's ability to deliver applications at a very high velocity. And, and since it requires cultural change, um, you know, th there's teams that, that uh, need new roles and new responsibilities in this new, in this new way of doing business or new way of delivering applications. So, so these, these teams need to have their roles and responsibilities clearly defined. There needs to be trust between teams. So, so you know, the, the entire process works like a well-oiled machine. Experiment. Now, I know this is something which, which scares a lot of you know, CISOs and, and executives, uh, the whole idea of being able to experiment. Uh, you know, many, uh, you know, many times, you know, uh, especially CISOs are concerned about security and, and you know, the sanity of the environment you know, when, when there's experiments going on. And, and this goes back to that culture where, where, uh, where I've seen organizations that build that culture of innovation uh, you know, really, get good at, uh, really get good at being able to transform their, their cloud program. So uh, normally failure is perceived in, in, in a very bad way in the enterprise. So, so, so it's really changing that culture where, where it's okay to fail, and it's okay to fail fast as long as you can get back up on your feet and, and try a different way of doing things. And you know, that's, that's basically what's gonna help you drive innovation. And uh, in, in terms of you know, organizationally, uh, many enterprises that have been in business for many, many years are actually afraid that you, know, you may have a couple of college kids who just came out of college, you know, start off in a garage, they get some services from AWS, and they could potentially put long-standing enterprises out of business. So what I see some customers do is they, act, rather than being disrupted by these college kids, they set up their own internal disruption, you know, disruption, organization, uh, disruption business units within, within the organization. And you'll actually hear from Lifion, which, which I think is an extremely smart thing that ADP has done, is, is creating something like a Lifion, which, which is that internal disruptor. Uh, training and enablement. So, uh, you know, through this week, we've heard the several dozens of announcements you know, through the week, you know, through the keynotes and, and through some of the breakouts. So you know, one thing with the cloud is that the, the pace is extremely, you know, uh, it's extremely fast-paced. And you know, really staying up-to-date with the skills is, is, is going to be critical for, for enterprises that are looking to really transform themselves in the cloud. So you know, by the fact that you're here is excellent. You're, you're all getting educated, you're, you're learning. So, you want to have you know, a mix of you know, uh, either conferences, formal training, informal training, uh, and, and this would really help you know, accelerate that, that cloud adoption. And the, the other challenge I see with customers is they, you know, they, they want to jump on the cloud bandwagon, but a lot of times their, their, their 
uh, people are not having the right skills and, and they have the same mindset in, in, in the way how they design and architect and build on-premise systems. They bring that into the cloud and that really is, is not efficient. And, and I've seen you know, instances with customers where, where their costs sometimes are going up uh, because they're really not trained to, to take advantage of all the tools that the cloud has to offer where they can, where they can really keep their costs low and, and be in that cloud native environment where, where things elastically grow and shrink. And, and you can use things like serverless Aurora, you know, Lambda, Dynamo, to, to really reduce your costs and, and uh, take advantage of, of, of the, the broader platform. So IDC has actually published you know, some uh, research in terms of you know, some stats, as you, you, you can see on the slide. 80, you know, they, they've seen 80%, you know, organizations that have, that have their people trained and enabled and empowered uh, see 80% faster adoption to cloud. Uh, you know, close to three times a jump start in the innovation and, and over four times, you know, being able to overcome any sort of operational and performance concerns. Okay. And the last, the last thing I wanted to touch on, and not the least, is the cloud center of excellence. I, I cannot stress on this, uh, you know, uh, more. I mean, the Cloud Center of Excellence is really going to be your, your engine that drives that cloud transformation process. So, so really, the, the Cloud Center of Excellence is going to be your cross-functional team, you know, made up of people you know, representing different business units within, within your organization. And, and in enterprises, you know, there's, there's, there's a tendency to be very siloed. And, and what I see with the larger enterprises is that duplication of efforts. You know, you, I, I see different silos of teams trying to solve the same problem, and they're kind of banging their heads against the wall. And, and you know, this, having this, this cloud center of excellence would really help create standard processes you know, across the organization, standard patterns that can be reused. And uh, you, you'd be able to eliminate all this duplication efforts, and you'd, you'd be able to have the right guardrails for, for teams to be able to uh, innovate, to be uh, fast, to be, and, and to be secure at the same time using DevOps and DevSecOps. With that, uh, I'd actually like to hand it off to, to Zed Masood. So uh, Zed actually uh, is the lead principal architect at Lifion, and he actually works with 200 plus engineers you know, within the Lifion organization. And he's been uh, you know, the central and, and, and key for, for spearheading the cloud transformation efforts at Lifion. So uh, I'd like to invite Zed, who, who's going to talk to you about how Lifion has transformed their cloud journey. Thanks, Sanjay. Hey, guys. So I'm Zed Masood. I work with Lifion. Uh, so what I'm going to do is take the next uh, you know, 20 to 30 minutes or so and tell you guys a, a bit more about our journey. And uh, I'm going to start with a little bit of an overview of our business, what we do, um, and then spend a bit of time talking about the journey that we've taken on in the last two or three years or so. Uh, this is a 300-level session, so towards the end of it, uh, we are going to uh, do a bit of a deep dive into some of the managed services we've adopted, including Kinesis, DynamoDB, Aurora, and ElastiCache. Um, and we're going to be talking a bit about our learnings on that, and we're going to leave a few minutes at the end for, for questions. So a lot of people you know, know us as a payroll company, and that's, that's true. We do, payroll is absolutely a large part of our business. We pay about one in six people in the, in the United States, but ADP is a lot more than that. Uh, we're, over the last several years, we've been transitioning from a services company more and more towards a technology company, and human capital management is a big part of our business. 
We're about 58,000 people around the world, so uh, it's, it's a large, complex enterprise. Um, and many of our products span the full human capital management or HCM space. So HCM includes a wide variety of products, um, including things like managing time, performance management, integrating with things like benefits and, par and payroll integrations, um, how we manage people data and organizational structures, um, how we do things like approval flows, uh, compliance efforts, um, and uh, various different integrations with uh, customer systems as well. But what we've, one of the things we've done is really invested heavily in next-gen programs, and Lithion is one of ADP's next-gen programs. Um, it's really helping us to, to lay a, a solid foundation for our future. Uh, we're competing in an increasingly competitive market with startups and others uh, that are uh, playing a big role in this space. Um, what we've really done is inf helped infuse a broader organizational disruption. Um, we're doing things like uh, you know, cloud-native architectures, uh, improved user experiences, um, and it, it's really a, a big part of our, our strategy is, is investing in these next-gen programs. So I'm going to take, uh, take us through some more details into what we've done uh, at Lithion. So just to give you guys a bit of background about what is our Lithion's business, what we do, the platform we're building, um, it's really a low-code human capital management app development platform, right? So human capital management apps have a lot of customization needs. They're quite complex uh, compared to a lot, lot of other apps in the industry. Um, the, you know, there's compliance needs in different regions. There's, er there's areas where we need to customize aspects of the functionality for certain clients. So, uh, so really what we're doing is building something that lets you build human capital management apps um, with a low-code approach. Uh, so this gives us high velocity, uh, and it helps us customize our apps for individual cases um, without managing very complex uh, code behind it. Some of our key business differentiators, we're truly global from the ground up. Uh, these are things that uh, are differentiating for us. It's a rapid product development uh, approach, so uh, meaning that you can build out complex business logic and workflows using a low-code development approach. And really an app ecosystem that something we call HR your way. So what we're seeing with, uh, with several, with one of the trends we're seeing with our customers is that uh, there, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of demand for having uh, HR done in exactly the way you do business. Uh, and this is really one of the things that our platform enables is, is a app ecosystem where, where you can use specific apps that, uh, that work for you. Dynamic teams, different from more traditional organizational hierarchies. Uh, so uh, customers using things like agile teams or uh, things like uh, matrix organizational structures, and that's something else that we're, we're building into this platform. Uh, more and more trends towards the uh, gig economy, uh, different types of worker, worker preferences, more uh, sort of temporary worker preferences, and that's something that we're, uh, uh, we have as a, one of our product dis differentiators as well. But the, the biggest one, I think, for, 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 uh, for us for, for, for this session is really the cloud-native HCM. And this is something that we're actually seeing resonate within our market. Um, from a marketing effort, we're actually saying that we're a cloud-native HCM today. And we're finding that it's resonating with our customers. Um, 
both from an interest perspective in terms of how, uh, what it means to be cloud native, but also uh, as a customer, you might, you, know, you might wonder, well, how does it actually benefit me? And we are finding that customers are, are, are feeling that because of the cloud native nature of our underlying, store, uh, underlying technology, that there will, be, uh, there will be a translation to them in terms of what it means for reliability, um, uptime, uh, and the way we do deployments, and the way we, uh, we, we push out application updates. So this is something we're going to continue to see more and more from a marketing perspective as a cloud-native HCM. We've added about two, uh, we've more than doubled in size in the last two years. So we're 461 people around the world today. We've got uh, five pilot customers, uh, and uh, we're looking to increase that quite aggressively within the next uh, couple, of, couple of years. We've uh, got a microservices-based uh, ecosystem. We are 160-odd microservices, and I'm going to get a bit more into detail about the architecture behind that. We're using seven uh, public cloud services today with AWS. Uh, and we've got a rich uh, ecosystem of human capital management apps. Some of the advantages we've seen with microservices include uh, teams having full control over their services from start to bottom. You build it, you ship it. Yeah, you build it, you, you ship it, yeah. And these teams take full ownership from the UI level to the database level to the application level, uh, and they're very, very well aware of how their infrastructure looks. So Lithion itself was born in the cloud. This is what our architecture looked like about two to three years ago. The first thing we did, our first version of, of Lithion, everything was on EC2. So Looking at things like you know, our container orchestration and scheduling framework, back in 2015, we were running Docker Swarm. Uh, microservices, 160-odd microservices with a variety of, um, of uh, runtimes. Primarily Node.js is more than 90% of, of our services. UI with, uh, with React, a bit of usage of Python, Scala, and Go as well. Um, and this was a Docker Swarm uh, cluster running on EC2. And then we have our service, di service discovery mechanisms and then a bunch of different databases. So using a sort of a polyglot persistence approach with uh, the right database for the job, with a multi-master MySQL solution running on EC2. Uh, we had a distributed document database also running on EC2, um, graph database, search database, um, as well as data streaming brokers um, all running on EC2. And this meant that our teams took on a large span of control from OS-level concerns, things like AMIs, to patching, to upgrades, how we provision our clusters, how we manage our infrastructure as code, how we do failovers, how we uh, look at high availability. What does it mean for one of our nodes in all of our distributed databases? What does it mean for them to fail? How long does it take for it to come back up? Um, backup approaches, and this is, this is the span of, of the things that we were looking at. Um, and in some respects, you might think that this sort of looks like something that you might have taken from a, from a data center and put it into, into the cloud. 
So our key operational goals that we, we sat down, we, we defined, we wanted highly available, scalable, maintainable infrastructure. Um, our infrastructure as code strategy, uh, what we, we wanted it to be highly repeatable so that we could provision new environments quickly. We wanted to minimize our operational complexity. So all the things our teams were doing with some of the aspects I'd mentioned before uh, were, were things that we found were taking quite a lot of time. And in a microservices architecture, workload isolation is very critical. And we found that over, over the last several years. So when we have service teams that are using all of our various databases, what does it mean for one of those services to be putting a high, a, a high workload and how that affects other workloads. Um, and with our database clusters, that was something that, that we found we really wanted to, to help improve. So to tell you more about our, the drivers behind our adoption of managed services, we've got Lohit Sarma. He's our VP of product development. And he leads our Lithium developer platform organization. And it's a very short message from him. Lithion is ADP's next generation HCM platform. We're fully owned by ADP, but we function as a startup inside ADP. The main goal of Lithion is to help uh, accelerate ADP's digital transformation. So why do we choose to go with managed services? Like most modern applications, Lithion was born in the cloud. We're powered by microservices. And with every microservice application, each engineering team owns services and its uh, data store. But what we noticed is as we began to scale, the operational complexity of managing these stores started to increase. We started noticing the engineering teams were spending a lot of time on, the, on just maintaining the tech stack as opposed to concentrating on the core product differentiators. So around last December, we sat down and asked ourselves, why are we spending so much time in just maintaining the stores as opposed to building out the product? That's when we decided to make the bet on managed services. Over the past 10 months, as we began to adopt the managed services, there have been a few learnings. And as we begin to scale out our applications, we want to start releasing these learnings out to the uh, community. Over the next two months, we will be incorporating this into a few open source releases, which we hope the community can adopt, and it can be beneficial for the community. If someone were to ask me what the biggest wins were over the past year, I'd say moving across to managed services was one of them. So what we started seeing when we anal analyzed all these managed services, really the operational burden was a big factor that we considered. Workload isolation uh, within a microservices framework is something I mentioned earlier. But how do, how do we use the easier ability to provision services? And how can we use that effectively to, to isolate workloads within, different, within our services ecosystem? So, uh, so each service can have its own, whether it's like a Aurora cluster or an SQS queue or a Kinesis stream or a DynamoDB table. That's something that's actually isolated to that service versus having a shared multi-master MySQL database or, or other document database that different service teams are connecting and trying to figure out what is the right partitioning approach. How do we segment that data between different service teams? Um, and that's something that we found was, um, w was, was a big factor here. Reliability is extremely important. So each of the services that we looked at, we, we looked at what are the multi-AZ capabilities of these services? What happens in case of an AZ failure? How does our application respond to an availability zone failure? 
have we made sure all of our drivers and all of our connectivity within the, from the application level to these uh, various services um, responds effectively? And then the sort of the fixed cost versus the pay-per-use uh, billing model. So, you know, are we provisioning all these EC2 instances for our peak capacity for the next eight to 12 months? Or are we able to use more of an on-demand approach where we can pay for what we use with services like, like Kinesis or Dynamo or more of a, cap a capacity-based uh, billing model? These are the databases we use today. For relational database, we use, uh, we use Aurora. Dynamo, primarily for key value storage. There is some, uh, some document database storage there as well. Elastic Cache uh, for scalable in-memory caching, caching needs. And AWS Elasticsearch service as well for our search capabilities. And I'm gonna dig a little bit deeper into, into some of these shortly. Kinesis we're using for two to three, two different key use cases. One is really for rep data replication between different stores. So data coming in from a relational database, how that then replicates to, to other data stores. Uh, we we're gonna talk about a couple of examples of that. For cases where we have a single consumer, where it's much more uh, contained, we, we're using SQS, and um, we found that to, uh, to be quite, quite a simple, simple service to adopt as well. S3 and CloudFront for content, sto content storage and uh, CDN purposes. Um, so edge-to-edge -edge cache locations with, uh, with CDN, so our, our customers are downloading static assets closest to their edge location. We're evaluating EKS and Neptune today. So uh, we, we are uh, migrating to Kubernetes. That's something that's in, in the works. Um, and EKS is something that we're, uh, we're evaluating for, uh, for future adoption. And Neptune for graph database storage. So a, a big part of, our, uh, of the data we have, there's, there's organizational structures and hierarchies. And how do we traverse those structures? How do we, uh, how do we find the, somebody up the organizational hierarchy who's not on vacation who can approve a certain request, as an example? So, uh, so we are using graph databases for that. Neptune is something that we've been, uh, we've been following closely. We've been in touch, uh, touch with that team. Um, and we were considering adopting it shortly. So like I said, so this is a 300 level session, so we are gonna go a little bit deeper into, uh, into some of our key services that we use and talk, talk more about how we use them and what have been some of our learnings in using these services. Kinesis today we're using for three key use cases. So change data capture. So when we have system of record data that changes, how, how do we then Rep, how do we then stream that onto a stream so that consumers are, can react to that and, and capture those changes? So the, the graph database example I mentioned earlier, when we have a change in a system of record um, data, that then gets 
pro propagated to a kinesis stream, which will then be consumed uh, by a reactor that writes it to our graph database. So that's how we, that's how we keep that consistent. And then event-driven flows. So for example, there's events happening in the system. Uh, a new user is created, a new employee is created for, for a customer. Uh, that is an event that then there's downstream consumers responding to that uh, and doing, doing what they need to do in order to make sure that they're ready for that, uh, for that event to occur. One of the things we saw in our Kinesis client library uh, deployment consideration. So Kinesis was, uh, you know, f from a serverless model, like streams are very easy to create. Um, but one of the things, the, the client library itself is a JVM process. And um, that runs, so you need to actually run that over, uh, alongside your other services and have that communicate with your services using standard out. So this might work in some scenarios if, you know, if you've got a, a lot of JVM services, but in our case, like, we have Node.js services, so, uh, so there was a lot to consider around how you deploy that, right? Um, our logging framework used standard out, so that in itself wasn't, was something that we'd found would conflict with, with Kinesis. And uh, outside the JVM space, the, there's sort of this multi-lang daemon, uh, which is a JVM process that's deployed alongside your other services that communicates over standard out. So what we started to do is really look at what are the options here. And one of the things that we, uh, we made a decision on uh, earlier this year when we started adopting this is how do we, is to, develop a native Node.js Kinesis, Kinesis library. And we're actually happy to announce uh, we've been using this in production for uh, till, since the beginning of the year, so it's got more than six months of production use. We've recently taken that and created an open source version of it, um, and that's actually uh, available now. So the, this, the Lithium Kinesis client is a, it's a native Node.js consumer and producer library. Uh, we're actively maintaining it. There's a fair amount of development happening, uh, happening as we speak. Uh, but it already includes enhanced fanout support. So enhanced fanout support is a feature that the Kinesis team launched uh, in August this year. Uh, and we've, uh, we've got a no native Node.js uh, client with enhanced fanout support. We're also going to be adding the, the traditional, the classic, uh, APIs uh, to use with this, um, and that'll be coming shortly. So the other service we spent a fair amount of time looking at was DynamoDB. And, you know, we liked the, again, the sort of serverless nature of DynamoDB, no nodes to manage, no nodes to create. Um, the capacity model being uh, very fluid, you know, your ability to just provision capacity as you need it. We found it worked well for our key value use cases, but really need to validate your document storage use cases. If you're looking, if you're used to databases with, um, you know, nested array querying or, uh, or sub, uh, sub object uh, 
querying, then that's really something you want to take a look at uh, very carefully. It, works, it worked really well for us for smaller item sizes. Um, things that are single-digit kilobytes uh, work quite well. As item size increases, the, the billing unit with Dynamo is based on the item size. So for each you know, kilobyte or so, you're basically doubling your, your uh, capacity unit. So it works really, really nicely for small item sizes. We did end up uh, enabling a feature in our library where we split up larger documents and put part of them onto S3, kept, some of them, kept the smaller amount of the document that was just needed for querying uh, in the DynamoDB Dynamo item. Uh, Autoscaling can be nice if you have sustained periods of, of load increases. If you have very spiky loads, so if, if you've got you know, a, a sudden increase that just decreases quickly after that, autoscaling does take time to take effect. Uh, but burst capacity is something that can help there because the, uh, it, it, you basically get a credit of the last five minutes to use in the next five minutes if you haven't used that capacity in the last five minutes. So you, if, if you've got low usage, you can go um, you know, maybe 50 to 100% of your provision capacity on burst capacity. If you saw the keynote yesterday, there's an announcement on this with on-demand capacity, uh, and that's something that can help with some of these use cases, so, uh, so that's something that we're, we're evaluating as well. So previous to, our, previous to Aurora, like I mentioned, we were using a multi-master MySQL database, and we really started looking at what is it, what's it gonna mean for us to have a highly available, reliable, um, Aurora clusters, and what does it mean from, from performance point of view, uh, and, and a couple of other learnings on that as well. So the, one of the key things just from an availability perspective we realized is that the storage layer, as a shared storage layer, is already highly available, uh, and therefore compute, the, the compute instances you're, you're deploying with Aurora uh, in, in themselves are only providing high availability for the compute level, not for the storage level. So just from a high availability perspective, uh, you only really need a single read replica, whereas in other systems, uh, you, might, you, know, if, you, you might need to look at uh, quorum. You need to make sure that the majority of your nodes are available at the compute level. Uh, in kind of multi-master approaches, you need to make sure that you have at least three nodes deployed. Uh, but with Aurora, because the storage level itself is, is, is shared by all compute nodes and it's highly available in itself, uh, you, we actually only need two uh, Aurora instances for high availability. And that helped from a you know, cost analysis perspective. EC2, comparing the, the price of an EC2 instance versus the, the price of an Aurora instance, Aurora will be higher, but in our case, we needed less nodes than we needed on EC2. There's a lot of kind of documented performance improvements with Aurora. You know, you'll hear five times performance improvements. Those work really well with concurrent querying patterns. So, uh, you know, if you've got a lot of concurrent querying, uh, we saw performance improvements. Uh, long-running queries are, are, are a different profile. So if you're comparing long-running queries on Aurora versus um, you know, a, a vanilla MySQL or Postgres or something written on, um, you know, on EC2, uh, you're going to find some variations there. 
Point in time recovery, uh, really important, uh, important feature, really helped us uh, sort of simplify our backup processes. Binary logs is something we need for change data capture, so we, uh, we have binary logging enabled today. Uh, but enabling binary logging uh, does add time to, to failover. So that's something where uh, there are improvements in progress on that uh, already, and I think the team's, uh, team's well aware of, the Aurora team is well aware of that. So we also use ElastiCache. ElastiCache has both a memcached and Redis engine. And you know, there's various different comparisons you can do between these two engines. And one of the, one of the big drivers for us was availability. So um, really the biggest thing, the fact that the Redis engine does offer high availability um, and is multi-AZ, whereas memcached is a single instance, uh, that's what tipped the balance in favor of, of Redis because we want to have read replicas, we want to be multi-AZ, and we, we, we want to be resilient to availability zone failures. Uh, and that was, uh, that was why we used Redis in addition to the kind of, you know, the broad support within the ecosystem of things like client drivers and, and others as well. Elasticash, I would say, has probably been one of our smoothest adoptions out of the, the ones that we've discussed here. Uh, I think the, we found the driver ecosystem to be, to be quite, uh, quite resilient, and we've also seen that the, um, the maturity of the product, uh, you know, we didn't, it, there's been quite a few iterations. We're on a, a 4X version of Elasticash, so, uh, so we, we did not see any real issues from, a, from an adoption perspective. We had our teams just really using uh, Node Redis drivers, uh, pushing it out, and, uh, uh, and we were in production for, in some cases, in, uh, in a period of about two months with, uh, with Elasticache. With the Redis engine, uh, you also get two options. You get cluster mode and non-cluster mode. Non-cluster mode is the easiest to implement and deploy, but it limits horizontal scaling. So there is a little bit more complexity on the read side, uh, but in terms of, uh, of scaling operations, uh, you can vertical scale, but if you do vertical scaling, there will be a period of blocked reads and writes in vertical scaling. And what you, you can work around that. You can have retries in your, in your application logic, and that can, that can help. Um, but the alternative is to go with cluster mode but start with a single shard. So meaning that when we first went out to, to production with ElastiCache, we, had, we were in cluster mode. We had a single shard. So what this does is it enables us to grow horizontally and add additional shards in the future. Uh, and we've included. Are, uh, we've, we've made sure that the application is ready to add additional shards in the future. Um, and that's entirely an online operation with cluster mode. Um, so as long as your Redis driver is cluster mode aware, it'll be able to pick up any changes that happen in the cluster configuration and respond to that entirely online. We had to take a close look at sizing so 
since everything is in memory, we want to project out exactly how much memory we might be using uh, over the next 12 to 18 months um, and provision our clusters accordingly. And then what is the eviction policy? What happens when you do run out of memory? What is it that's getting evicted first? Is it the least recently used? Is it, the, um, is it based on a TTL that you've set? Um, so that was something that, that we had to take quite a bit of time to invest up front and make sure that those decisions are made, are made well. What we've seen with Redis is the, the retrieval times have been extremely fast, sub-millisecond in, in most cases. Uh, and it's, it, it's been really helpful for use cases where there's really low latency um, operations required throughout our ecosystem. One of the issues that you, know, you come up with when adopting an in-memory cache is what's the, what's the fail of, what's the failure um, strategy. So what happens if there's a, a node failure? What, what happens if you could use, lose all your data? It's something you have to plan around. So the, the Elastic Cache uh, does offer daily backups to S3. Um, so that's something we've enabled. So daily, there's a, there's a snapshot taken of your Elastic Cache uh, conf uh, data and written to S3. And that can be, um, that can be restored if required. So injecting new ideas and fresh talent um, is, so, is something that's, that can really help turbocharge a cloud-native transformation. One of the things we've done is, like I mentioned, the, the growth over the last two years, about uh, you know, more than twice the, the amount of growth. Uh, most of the people at Lithion are, are new hires from various parts of the industry. So the folks that have worked in different kind of entrepreneurial backgrounds and setups, uh, as well as uh, different areas of the industry. So it's really been, we've really injected a lot of fresh talent and ideas into the organization. And if, if you are thinking of a cloud transformation, the, the one thing I'd say to, to take away from this is to really spend some time upfront investing in, in more of a cloud native architecture, looking at managed services, looking at the fit for what those services could have for your application, rather than saying we've got you know, this application running on a data center, let's pick it up and put it into EC2. Um, but, but really, I, from our journey, from our experience, you know, we've, we started there, we transformed afterwards. Uh, and so if you're taking that time up front to really, really do that analysis, uh, whichever direction you decide to go, uh, you'll know why, what the reasons for that are, and you'll have a plan uh, for the future in terms of where, what your strategy is. So I'm going to turn it over to Sanjay to wrap up, and then we're going to have a Q&A. Great. Thank you, Zed. That was actually a, a great story, you know, with Lithion, you know, transforming themselves. You know, being, being a born-in-the-cloud startup, you know, they really put these five ingredients together you see at the bottom of the slide, you know, where, where they had the sponsorship, they have the cultural innovation, and, and, and they infused their teams with DevOps, they got educated, you know, they built that CCOE. So very, uh, you know, exciting to see them, you know, transform, you know, and, and be part of their journey. So that wraps up you know, this session. Uh, I know we're standing between you, know, between, uh, you and lunch, so please do take a couple of minutes to fill out the survey, uh, because we'd love to hear your feedback so we can make these sessions better. And, and we'll be available if anyone has questions. We do have stand-up mics uh, 
in, in the aisle. So if you have any questions, uh, if you're bold enough to come up there, you can, you can ask a question or, or we'll be available uh, down here if you have any questions and you know, if you need to talk to us. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for coming.